Let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 together. The sermon is titled, Jesus is Better. Chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Verse 6, now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's an interesting story. Uh, we know from previous weeks and from looking at the first chapter of, of John and, and um, his purpose statement at the end of his gospel that the purpose for which he is writing is to speak of the signs or the miracles that Jesus did which reveal that he is the son of God and that by believing that he is the son of God we might have eternal life. And so we know that the Gospel of John is a series of signs or miracles that Jesus did to prove who he is. It's also a series of witnesses who testify to who Jesus is. So here we have one of his signs, his first miracle recorded in the Gospel of John. We know that so far Jesus has begun gathering disciples or followers. And he's in this region of Galilee, which is a little bit north of Jerusalem. They attend this wedding together, and at the wedding, this problem arises. They're out of wine. Now, wedding celebrations at that time lasted not just for a few hours, but oftentimes for days. So it's likely that this was a much bigger problem than we might perceive it to be. You know, if we think if we get together for a few hours and halfway through run out of alcohol, depending on um, your views, that may or may not be a problem, but it doesn't seem like it's the end of the world. But if you were to go on vacation and your intentions and your plans were to consume alcohol throughout the week and you ran out of alcohol halfway through the week, that's a different problem. Add on top of that, there are some cultural norms that maybe we don't appreciate today, and that is it would be quite embarrassing for the groom to have put together this plan of celebration, this wedding feast, and to have run out of something so crucial as the wine that they were consuming. So this is perhaps a bigger problem than we might perceive it to be. So here's what it says in verse 3. Let me read it again. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. So when the problem arises and Jesus' mother comes to him and she wants him to fix it, 
And we don't have any, this is, in, in fact, in, in John's gospel, this is the first we hear from Mary. We don't have all of the, the birth narrative and Jesus' early life that some of the other gospels uh, give us. We just, this is sort of our introduction to Mary. This is the first time that she speaks in the gospel. And what she says is that she wants Jesus to solve this problem, can solve this problem or that she anticipates are about to begin happening for some reason. She brings this problem to Jesus. Why would she do that? If you are the guest at a wedding, and they run out of something, and you're just one of the guests there, and your mother comes up to you and asks you to fix it, she must think that you have the ability to do so, and perhaps some sort of responsibility to do so. And so she comes up to Jesus. She says, I don't have any wine. He says, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Now, I, there's a translation issue here. Not, an, not a translation issue. There's a cultural issue. When we read that statement, it's difficult to not read that as if Jesus is using the word woman in a derogatory sense. I don't think that is his intention. N nonetheless, it's certainly not an affectionate word that he has chosen. He has not chosen to refer to her as mother. He has not chosen to refer to her in any sort of familial way at all. He refers to her simply as woman. If you were to say that today, if you were to say, why are you bothering me, woman? You could expect to be in some trouble. I don't think it quite has that weight but it's closer to that than it would be, what do you want me to do about this mom or mother? He has deliberately referred to her not through their familial relationship, but as a, as a woman. And this is important uh, regarding Jesus and Mary's relationship throughout the rest of his earthly life. There is... I don't want to go too far with this, but there is a bit of Jesus distancing himself from Mary as his mother. As he enters into this new season of his life, this phase of his life here on earth, where he's entering into his public ministry, because for about 30 years up until now, that's not been his focus. He's just been a part of this family. He's just been a part of this nation of Israel. He's, he's been doing for the most part, what everybody else was doing. And as he did that, he had an earthly mother. But now he's transitioning into his, this phase of his earthly life where he's going to do what he really came to do, which is to provide salvation for everybody who would believe in him. And so he, he for the rest of his earthly life, tends to distance himself from Mary a bit and no longer so much treats her as mother but as a woman in need of salvation just like anyone else. I bring that up because there are, of course, certain Christian traditions that elevate Mary above the rest of us. That somewhere in between all of us needing salvation and the, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, is Mary, and that she's somehow closer to the Trinity than she is to us, and that's just simply not a biblical concept. Mary is a woman in need of salvation. She needs Jesus to die for her sins, just like the rest of us. So perhaps John is, is, is leading us to see that transition a little bit in their relationship. 
What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus' hour in the Gospel of John refers to the end of his life when he's going to, to be arrested, betrayed, punished, and die for the sins of the world. That is his hour. His hour is his hour of suffering. His hour is his hour of atonement for our sins. His hour is when he's going to go to the cross. And he knows that that hour is coming. He has an awareness by this point in his life of exactly what it is that he must do to bring salvation to the world. But he says, it's not yet. It's not yet my time. Now, what does this have to do with the wine? And what does this have to do with Mary's request of Jesus to fix this problem, to solve this problem? Again, I think there's strong indications here that Mary knows that Jesus can do something miraculous here. And she knows that if I do that, that speeds up the hour that is to come. The moment that I begin to do what you are asking me to do, things will be set into motion that we cannot undo. And he says, my hour has not yet come. So for these first 12 chapters, I talked about the, the two, the sort of the twofold structure of John's gospel. For these first 12 chapters, Jesus will be avoiding the hour. He'll be slipping away from the religious leaders when they try to arrest him. He'll be concealing his ministry as best as he can, asking his disciples, don't tell anybody what you've seen here today. His hour has not yet come. And so for the next couple of years, even though his public ministry is beginning and he's starting to do these things, he's not, it's not yet time to go to the cross. And then from, from somewhere in chapter 12 through the end of the book, the hour has come. And Jesus will be poured out, in the words of Scripture, as a drink offering. His life will become a payment for sins. So this is the beginning in John's gospel of Jesus' messianic ministry. It is his first miracle. It is the first thing that he does to begin to reveal who he is to this world. So he... He sort of puts, I don't want to say puts Mary in her place, because we, we, that probably carries stronger connotations than I mean. But he, he, he kind of lets her know what she's asking of him, right? It's bigger than she realizes. She's like, hey, I've seen my son do some things that might be helpful in this situation, and we care about these people, and they've got a, a difficult situation that they're in. Why don't I get him to help? And he says, you don't. You don't really know what you're asking. Nevertheless, she recovers from this subtle rebuke, and she instructs the servants, verse 5, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Her faith, her confidence in what Jesus can do is coming out. Verse 6, now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. 
let me just pause right there. And, and under the Old Testament law, there were times when, when the Jews had to wash themselves um, in order to prepare for religious ceremonies that they were to do in order to connect to God. And so that seems to be what's, what's going on here. You have these stone water jars that are there so that they can be filled with water with the intention of using that water to purify themselves, to get themselves ready to come into the presence of God and to worship him appropriately. I think that what we're going to see here, well, let me, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons, so there's a significant amount of water here. In other words, uh, if, if a miracle is about to take place, so we've got, what do we have, six, six stone jars, let's go with 20 gallons, you've got 120 gallons of water, so like Jesus could not have possibly hidden 120 gallons of wine somewhere like, like an illusionist or something. This is going to be an actual miracle. He said to them, oh, I'm sorry, let me go to verse 7. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Fill these six, these six stone jars to the brim. Take some out. Take it to the head waiter. Now, the head waiter seems to be the one responsible for this feast that's taking place. This guy's about to lose his job. He did not do a good job. They've run out of one of the most important ingredients of this wedding celebration. And the head waiter being the one who, he's, he's kind of like the caterer, you know. If you, if you put all this money into having an elaborate wedding like we do today, you've got thousands of dollars invested in feeding your guests. And, and halfway through, this is a Western Pennsylvania wedding, I assume, you run out of, of, of uh, ravioli or cabbage and, and like this, the stuffed cabbage and the things that we do. You run out of pierogies. You've got a problem. You were supposed to be ready for this. So the head waiter tasted the water, verse 9, after it had become wine. He did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. All right, on the surface, this is an interesting story. It's a miraculous event. But what is going on here? Why is this even taking place? Why, is, why does John take the space and the time in his gospel to tell us that Jesus turned water into wine? First of all, perhaps a couple of words on the elephant in the room a little bit. What in the world is Jesus doing giving drunk people more wine to drink like this seems a bit scandalous if you were raised like i was in christian traditions where alcohol and the consumption of alcohol under any circumstances was considered a sin this is very puzzling and perhaps it would be helpful to correct the narrative a little bit in terms of scripture scripture does not condemn the consumption of alcohol scripture certainly and without any doubt condemns drunkenness but not the consumption of alcohol. I actually went to a Bible college that taught a couple of things. Jesus never sinned, and drinking alcohol was a sin. And I specifically remember uh, being in a, in a class where that came up, and I said, I think we have a, I think we have a problem here. 
You're saying Jesus never sinned, but clearly Jesus consumed wine throughout his life and even at least on one occasion made the wine and gave it to other people. Is he, is he causing them to sin? Well, there's all kinds of issues. I guess this brings up that we don't have to go into, but I do want to make the, the point, you know, in, in the Bible, wine is often the sign of blessing, and it's given uh, at times, if used appropriately, to make merry the hearts of men. It's given at, at times um, to be a blessing, uh, but must be done appropriately, of course. Drunkenness is never permitted, and there are many circumstances under which you shouldn't drink alcohol. In fact, I would say this is even an issue. You know, as a Christian, you need to think wisely about this. If you, can, if you cannot consume alcohol in a way where you continue to behave um, in a way that glorifies the Lord, then you, you just simply should not consume alcohol. And I say that because I've had friends who, I guess because of, uh, you know, things that I don't understand physically, um, alcohol makes them very different people in a bad way, not in a good way. And I know uh, some of us have grown up with with people who alcohol was the source of a lot of hurt and a lot, a lot of bad things that have happened in your lives. And so it's certainly uh, in those cases, alcohol should be avoided completely. Uh, also, we have a law that I think is a good law that says no one under the age of 21 should consume alcohol. And that's, that's, a, that's a good law because no one under the age of 21 uh, has a fully formed brain. <laughs> and uh, consuming alcohol requires a lot of careful thinking. So I think that's a good thing. Anyhow, uh, I don't even know if that's helpful, but that's the elephant in the room in certain cultural contexts where alcohol might be considered a sin. I think we need to think biblically about that. That's not the real issue in this passage, though. The real issue in this passage, and if, you've, if, you, ha- if you have your hand out and you're like, is he ever going to get to filling in some of these blanks? This is your time. You've been clicking on your pen, getting it ready. Let's fill in some blanks. The real issue is this, that Jesus is the fine wine that has been kept until now. Everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, the inferior but you have kept the fine wine until now. This whole passage, if you want to know what is the main point of this passage, you have to reflect on those two sentences in verse 10. Because what, what John, they have been kept until now. That what is going on here is much bigger and much broader than solving a problem at a particular wedding in a small town named Cana in an obscure place called Galilee. That what is going on here actually has to do with solving the biggest problem that has ever existed in the universe. That is the problem of the separation of man from God because of our sin. How are we going to solve that? You have to understand what's happening with Jesus in John chapter 2, that he is the fine wine that has been kept until now. The wine that was put out first probably wasn't bad. I mean, they drank it all. <laughs> like, Not that it's unthinkable that people would, 
would drink to the end bad wine. It happens all of the time. Uh, it's, and, and, you know, worse, there's people out there that actually finish a case of light beer, uh, which I think probably is a sin. It's not that the wine was, that was put out first that was bad. It's that the wine that Jesus supplied was so much better. It, ca- it caused, it caused the, the people in this story to go, what's going on here? And I've never seen anybody do this. Everybody always puts out the best wine first to sort of show off. And then as our senses are dulled and we care a little bit less about the quality of wine, we bring out the inferior wine, but you. And he's speaking to the character of the one who has done this. The head waiter tasted the water, and he did not know where it came, though the servants knew. He called the groom, and he says to the groom, there's something I need to say about the kind of man you are. You have kept the fine wine until now. But is this really about wine? Certainly John wants us to see that Jesus has the power to do miraculous things. Don't miss that. I'm not downplaying that at all. I want you to understand one of the first things that John shows us about Jesus is that he can do miraculous things. And that's why I, I went to the, the trouble of pointing out how many gallons were. This is not some sort of trickery that he does. And, you know, we see illusionists today who do things that our eyes can't believe. This is not that. This is a miracle. This is 120 or more gallons of water that miraculously became wine. John wants us to see that. But is that Jesus' real concern that we don't run out of wine at weddings? Well, the real concern and what this really means is the next thing you see on your handout is that Jesus is better than the old covenant. Now, I've just taken a huge leap. I've gone from Jesus can turn water into wine to Jesus is better than the old covenant. So I have to justify that leap. And I plan to do that by, by looking at this passage as well as the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than the old covenant. What I, what I believe is going on here is that Jesus is using a real life event to illustrate why he has come to the earth. The wine that ran out represents the old covenant. The, wa- the, the ceremonial jars, that's why John includes this detail. That's why he tells us that these jars were there for Jewish purification. They weren't just any old jars. They weren't even wine jars. He doesn't, I don't know what the wine that they drank was stored in, but Jesus does not refill those containers. Those would be wine containers. What he does is he takes something very specific. The containers that were set aside to be filled with water for Jewish purification. He's taking what represents the old covenant the Old Testament law, and he's going to make it better. So the wine that ran out represents the Old Covenant. The fine wine that has not been brought out until now is the New Covenant, which he is about to establish. This is how Jesus starts his ministry. He's not just fixing this poor guy's problem who's about to have a lot of people mad at him because they ran out of wine. He's, he's letting the world know, and really, we won't know until John writes his gospel, he has come to make something better. Hebrews is going to help us a lot. I mean, I, I, 
look, I, I, can, I think I can justify all of that from the Gospel of John. The passage that we're going to look at next week is very helpful. Uh, when Marty brings that word to us, you'll see how that, I think, further establishes this idea that this isn't just about wine, that it's about old and new covenant. Um, but um, to, instead of just preaching the Gospel of John, because we're going to get to all of that, Hebrews helps us a lot. Hebrews chapter 1 Really, the first 10 chapters of Hebrews are about how Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. I mean, for 10 chapters, the author of Hebrews just goes, in all of the ways that Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. I'll read a couple of them for you. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So he spoke through the prophets, but now he's spoken to us by his Son. You can see... Uh, intuitively why that's better, right? God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, so he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews is going to tell us First of all, how Jesus is better than the prophets. And then he's going to go into detail about all the ways in which Jesus is better than the angels. He's even going to tell us at one point how Jesus is better than Moses, how Jesus is better than the Sabbath, because he himself becomes our rest from works. Jesus is better than the high priests who came before him to offer sacrifices for the atonement of the sins of the people. He's better than the entire priesthood that came from Aaron. That's what we learn in Hebrews, that Jesus is better than all of this. Let me read a couple of more things. Uh, if, uh, and you don't have to turn there. You can just listen as I read this. You can try to keep up if you want, but I intend to move quickly. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 22 and following, it says, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office, but because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Let me just pause for a second. That's what the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, by the way, Testament and Covenant mean, those are the two words for the same thing. Testament means covenant, okay? So the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, this is what it was seeking to accomplish. That's why if you read in the book of Leviticus, there's all of these what seem to be to us just completely insane rules for how the priests were to approach God to make sacrifices for the sins of the people. It's, it's striving after what's described here in Hebrews chapter 7. This is the kind of priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So if you were an old covenant priest, you went to great lengths to make yourself ready to offer the sacrifices for the sins of the people. But this high priest, speaking of Jesus... Verse 27, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. 
For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfect forever. Jesus is better. He's better than the Old Testament priests. Hebrews goes on in chapter 8 to say, Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not by man. There's, if you, there, the earthly tabernacle and the earthly temple are mere representations of a, of a tabernacle that exists in heaven and then of a sacrificial system that exists in heaven. These things on earth are a shadow of the things that are in heaven. And Jesus offered a sacrifice in the tabernacle in heaven. And that sacrifice was himself. Verse 6 of chapter 8. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant. Which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant, the Old Testament, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. In other words, we wouldn't need. If that worked, Jesus would not have needed to come. I'll continue a little bit. Uh, chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 11. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Again, that's this one that exists in heaven, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. You have to have read the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law, to appreciate this. When you read chapter after chapter in the Old Testament of all of the things that must be done to a T, in order to effectively offer sacrifices for sins, only then can you appreciate what Jesus has come and done so much better. What Jesus has come and fulfilled completely. That's why it says in verse 14 or 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is better. He's better. He comes to be the better covenant. He comes. So, so what was the point of the old covenant then? That brings that begs the question, right? It brings up the, something that must be answered. If Jesus is better, why didn't we start with Jesus thousands of years before he came? Why this this period of what we now call Old Testament history, where they're going through the motions of this old covenant? Well, here's the next thing on the handout. The old covenant was a placeholder for Jesus. 
It's a placeholder for Jesus. The old covenant was put into place to prepare people for Jesus. And to show how he would atone for our sins. And so for thousands of years as God progressively revealed his plan of redemption. One of the things that he does is he puts in place this old covenant that will, if, if, if taken seriously, will prepare people's hearts to understand what Jesus is going to come to do. To, and to understand the way in which he does it. It's a placeholder. It's, 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 it's there to prepare us and to get us ready for Jesus. And so Hebrews 10 says in, in verse 1, Since the law has only a, sh- a shadow of the good things to come and not, not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. That's what it was. It was a reminder. It was a reminder of our need for a greater sacrifice. It was a reminder of our need for a greater. God is setting the stage through the old covenant. He's preparing our hearts to understand what it is. That's why Christians need to read the Old Testament. Sometimes it's, it, it can be difficult reading some parts of it. Some of, me, some of it are fantastically exciting, don't get me wrong. But some of the Old Testament, especially the Old Covenant, the Old, the Old Testament law stuff can be a little bit difficult to get through. But it, it does us good because it helps us understand what Jesus has done. That, just like uh, Hebrews 10 says in verse 12, But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice. Under the old covenant, you had to offer sacrifices continually, year after year, coming back to the tabernacle or to the temple and offering sacrifices for your sins. Jesus does it once, and it's done. He finishes it. And what is he doing now? Verse 13, chapter 10 tells us, he is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. That's you and I. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is an Old Testament prophecy of the new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days. The Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And listen, and I will never again remember their sins. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So this Old Testament repetition, this Old Covenant repetition of sacrifices for sins is no longer necessary. Jesus did it. Jesus came and he became the one sacrifice needed for sins forever. And he completely, fully fulfilled God's need for justice for our sins. He drank every last drop of God's wrath for our sins. 
But before he did it, he prepares the way for this sacrifice. He prepares the way to replace the old covenant with the new by instructing a couple of guys at a wedding who have a big problem, they've ran out of wine, to fill up those jars. I'll turn it into wine. You take it to the head waiter. He's going to go to the groom and say, you're some kind of man. <laughs> you're some kind of man. Every, I, I, I do this all the time. I do weddings every, every weekend. And everybody always does the same thing. They put the good wine out first and then the cheap wine, but you, you have held the best for last. You have replaced what, what everybody was accustomed to with something that is far better. And so if we go back to John chapter 2 and we look at verse 11, after this was done, it says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I love it. You see how much bigger this story is? That Jesus is saying, I'm getting ready to, I'm getting ready to shake this thing up, guys. I'm changing things. The old way of doing things, those, what those jars represent, get ready. It's about to get a lot different. It's going to look a lot different. Next thing, this, I think this is the last thing on the handout. Jesus revealed his glory and established a new covenant. He hasn't done that yet, but I'm going to show you when he does do that. He established a new covenant. Those who believed in him become part of this covenant. How do, how do we go from the Old Testament, which is basically needing to find a way ourselves to atone for our sins, a way prescribed from God. I don't mean to imply that they were made cost, bring the sacrifice. That's what the old covenant was. At, at your cost, you bring a sacrifice that is actually in the end quite insufficient and not able to forgive your sins. Therefore, you must come back and keep doing this again and again and again ad nauseum until you're completely exhausted by and overwhelmed by the need that your own sin has created. Jesus replaces that old covenant with the new one. And the way to get into the new covenant, you understand a covenant is an agreement. It's an arrangement between two parties. God is, is offering to man a way to him. That's what, that's what the covenant is accomplishing. But the, the covenant is the, the terms by which we come to him. And so he replaces the old one with the new. Uh, as you came in, uh, you, you hopefully were offered uh, a communion cup. If you, if you weren't offered a communion cup in a moment, uh, they're, they're on that table if you want to go and get one. Communion becomes the representation for New Testament believers, us Christians, of this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. If we fast forward a couple of years from that wedding in, in Cana to the end of Jesus' life and ministry, and we look at Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20, and Jesus is, this is, this is the night he is about to be arrested. It's, it's the evening before he's going to die on the cross for our sins. I like the way, I think it's in Corinthians, the way uh, 
Corinthians says it, on the night he was betrayed. That puts it into context a little bit. This wasn't the night before, this wasn't the night on which his disciples were going to show their undying devotion to him. (laughs) This is the night which Jesus is about to be betrayed, even by his closest friends and followers. On the night that he was betrayed, in in Luke chapter 22, verse 14, when the hour came, remember this idea of Jesus' hour, where now it is the hour, like it's time. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this cup, share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is it, he's saying. This is the last time we're going to do this together. Verse 19, And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, In the same way he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 